ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Tuesday, November 30th, it's Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, and today we have a very, very special guest. I'm really excited to welcome on to the show the one and only Jason Stark, senior baseball writer at The Athletic and insider for MLB Network, but that sells him short, and you'll see why as we get through this conversation today, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Jason, in what is a crazy, crazy time right now in Major League Baseball. Jeff, Aram, it's a pleasure to be with you. There are a few things going on in the sport, but you guys will be a lot more fun than chasing the latest rumors. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, you know, I'm having a blast with these rumors. And I, I know for, for Jeff, he's doing, you know, coaching and all that busy stuff with college baseball. He's got a lot of kids to manage and, and a lot going on as the season starts to get closer and closer. And I'm always in his ear like, did you see what happened? Did you see what happened? Did you see what happened? But I can't even keep up right now. And we're going to get to a little bit of everything from the upcoming Hall of Fame ballot to the piece that you put out recently about the biggest topics of discussion in this Hall of Fame ballot, because I would argue this is the most controversial ballot we've ever seen. Uh, Of course, the moves that we've seen being made right now. But I'm also really excited to hear about you two and a lot of the crossover that you guys had throughout your years, especially in 03 with the Marlins. And that's where I want to start right after we quickly just get your thoughts on what's going on right now. Because, Jeff, we've told the story in the past where you had the trade deadline and you were on a plane where there was about, what, minutes left, and you had to use the the airplane phone uh, to be able to decide <laughs> if you're going to accept the trade of the Marlins because it was contingent on an extension. Good thing that happened because we're going to talk about a lot of those stories that happened subsequently on the way to the World Series and that title. But this is that kind of soft deadline, but also a hard deadline where everything is happening up until the CBA expiration on December 1st. I'll start with Jason because I want to see what, what your thoughts are from the writer side and then from the player side as well, because I would love to hear a player's perspective in this kind of situation. Have we ever seen anything like this, Jason? Uh, not in November. Yeah, I mean, you see it every year in the NBA. You see it every year in the NFL. You never see it in baseball because the the pace free agency is so different. This is how it ought to be. Um, you know, my, my joke is always the NBA – LeBron becomes a free agent at what nine in the morning and he's signed by dinner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, Bryce Harper becomes a free agent and he's signed three weeks into spring training. What, yeah. what's wrong with our sport that this is how it works, but there was never supposed to be any formal deadline to free agency, but what you really have, I think Jeff, you probably could appreciate this is a bunch of players and a bunch of teams who are sitting here looking at um, basically jumping on a boat to nowhere and not knowing what it looks like 
on the other side. So you have all these teams that want to fill as many needs as they can, especially on the pitching side. And you've got a lot of players who just don't know what life's going to be like when the boat docks wherever it, it docks. And so that is driving this incredible November, November frenzy, unlike anything that anyone in baseball that I've talked to has experienced. I'd like to get your thoughts on that because since the CBA, the whole thing with the lockout and everything is going to be happening soon, why would the owners be throwing this kind of cash around when there might be different rules after this new CBA is negotiated? There might be salary caps. There might be uh, some crazy things we don't even know about that might affect what the value of these contracts (laughs) could have been if they would have waited. Yeah. What did our grandpas always say, Jeff? Follow the money. You know, this is this <laughs> no, is I telling- understand that from a player standpoint, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely going to follow the money, but I'm I'm guessing on the owner standpoint, they're just throwing it out there like it's any other year. Uh, I'm just a little surprised at uh, what we've seen so far, the activity. Yeah, I, I do think this is telling us something mm-hmm. we've got to sort through is exactly what it is telling us. I think I'm kind of like you. I I really thought that. What we would see is a little activity, not a lot of activity, and then going into this lockout with the league trying to use just the, the, the days flying off the calendar as a pressure point to get players and agents to start trying to apply pressure to the union to get something done. And if you would let all of these free agents float out there till what mid to late January that would have happened. Now, not everybody is going to sign. Um, there are going to be some star players. It looks like who don't sign. And so there's still be some of this, but the fact that so many teams have gotten this done and so many players have signed is that's a surprise. Um, but again, maybe it's telling us something. Maybe it's telling us that clubs don't expect the system to change as much as we might think it's going to change. Um, I, I think that is reasonable to speculate about. And then the, the third thing it obviously tells us is everybody now expects a lockout. You know, I've, I've been expecting one for a long time, but I always thought, well, there's always a chance of a miracle mm-hmm. as the days have, have gone by and there's been no progress at all. Um, I was losing my hope of that. But when teams react this way and free agent players react this way, we know now with virtually 100% certainty, there's going to be a lockout later this week. And then we're all just going to have to deal with that. So Jeff, from a player's perspective, because I think that's exactly the point here that Jason makes is that a lockout's imminent. And from a player perspective, I kind of see the urgency of I'm imagining now I've understood so much more from the player's side as we've started this show and just understanding how much goes into the decision as as a family man and as someone who has kids or even just trying to figure out what's next for you. Got to figure out where you're going to go ahead of this lockout, because then you won't be able to sort out where you're going to go at that point. And how much of that do you think is playing into this a pressure to make that decision, make that signing, have the ink dry prior to the expiration of the CBA. Because if you don't, you're going to have the next couple months, potentially having no idea where you're going to be spending your next season and potentially moving your family and all of that crazy stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for these guys and going uh, after what these contracts uh, they're being offered, you know. And it's uh, like you said, it's um, a quick decision is to be made. Where most times they get to sit on it for a long time and just let the bidders come in, and uh, it's kind of a bidding war on some of these guys because this has got to be one of the most talented free agent classes we've seen in, in quite some time, uh, especially at the, at a single position when you've got so many stud players at shortstop, that are coming out and, and being able to sign uh, lengthy contracts. But um, I just, I just found it, you know, and Jason, you lived through this and in 2006, I think we were, I think it was 2006 when we were on the verge, I was a, a assistant player rep and I had the, the list of guys on the rooming list and I was called at four o'clock because we were told not to go to the stadium that day because we were either going to go on strike or there's going to be a lockout. I can't remember which one it was, but I called at four o'clock my half of the list and said, OK, we can go play tonight because they got a done a deal done, you know, at the 11th hour, which was crazy. So obviously we don't think that's going to happen here because there is so much time before spring training uh, starts and, and this uh, CBA is expiring. But uh, the flurry of activity has been extraordinary. Yeah, I think that was 2002, Jeff. Uh, oh, was it 2002? I, I could, because I, I can remember uh, being at ESPN and st- like standing outside the MLB headquarters all night long. We knew they were in there talking. Uh, there were some some hints of progress, and so w- went to the you know, left my hotel, walked over there that afternoon, and then never left. <laughs> I, I stood outside that place for 30 hours. It was wow. crazy. Yeah, 2002. That's right. 95 and it was like a five or six year deal. So 2002 sounds about right. Yeah. Well, then a year later, 2003, you guys crossed paths. And that was especially once Jeff went over to Florida and ends up joining a team that I don't think he had any clue was going to end up being a World Series contender. I think you knew it was going to be a good team. They were hot. But once you step foot there, you knew there, there was something special, Jeff. And you've mentioned that on several occasions. Jason, though, on the outside a little bit. I mean, you were probably one of the most involved in terms of being on the inside. But was that a little bit later? Like, at what point did you realize that this Marlins team was for real uh, <laughs> and that this was to be taken seriously? Because we know in hindsight how talented that roster was. But at that time, I mean, it was a bunch of kids. There's no way we really knew, uh, I guess, quite ta- how talented they were, right? I, look, I, I'm not going to claim that uh, I went into opening day thinking, hey, the Marlins are going to win the World Series. <laughs> but it would have been a good I, bet, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it made you I, a lot of money. <laughs> I know. Where, where were you to give me that tip at the time, Jeff? Um, the Orioles, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, I didn't really know until all, all the time I spent around your team in September and October. And it's not that you never lost. It's that it felt like you thought you were never going to lose. You know, there were just, there's certain times you, you just get a feeling about a team. I got that feeling about that team because special things kept happening. And the more they happen, the more they seem to pretend the next special thing happening. Did it feel like that as a player in that team? Yeah, and I've discussed this uh, with Arm on a number of occasions that it seemed like we never felt we were out of a game. Didn't matter what the score was. 
uh, we always felt we could come back and win a game if we were behind. And even at that uh, Cubs game, game six, you know, we're down five, we're, we're down three nothing in the eighth inning and we got five outs to go. And, you know, Mark Pryor is absolutely dealing this entire game. But um, as soon as the Barman thing happened, you know, we we screamed that instant, let's make him famous, boys. Let's make him famous. <laughs> and sure enough, about 25 minutes later, he was famous. All right. Yeah, he was for all the wrong reasons. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was sitting in the uh, auxiliary box at Wrigley Field, which was out in the stands. And, you know, I remember seventh inning stretch, uh, looking around Wrigley Field. And, you, you know, you saw a look on people's faces that at that point, no living human had ever seen. <laughs> you know, these people right. were, right, they were hugging their loved ones with tears in their eyes. There were a few beverages involved. They were singing, take me out to the ball game at the top of their lungs because they knew they were actually going to live to see the Cubs go to the World Series. And, you know, at that moment, you never, ever could have envisioned what was about to happen. But I learned something that night because, the the moment that Moise Salou threw his glove um, after Bartman got in his way, you know, I've never believed in curses, but I realized at the time everybody in this ballpark does believe in curses, and the the energy of the park changed. It was like you could feel it, you could smell it, you could taste it, you could hear it. And, you know, people talk about how crowds can have an effect on a team. And usually we're talking about how teams get energized by crowds. It was the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about the energy, the negative energy that started flowing out of the seats and this sense of dread and all the ghosts that these people had lived with their whole lives. You could feel it. And it almost felt like the Cubs could feel it did you guys get that sense too yeah on the opposite end of that yeah right because that was the that was the spark that ignited us you know it was we weren't down down but you know we got a formidable foe on the mound uh they got a good bullpen at the time and we knew we had our work cut out for us we got one out but that for some reason just lit the fire and all of a sudden like you said, the, the, the switch flipped and it went from all them to all us, even though we were still down three, nothing, we hadn't scored a run yet, but uh, I'm telling you, our dugout was on fire and then boom, it just, we went crazy. We went absolutely crazy. That inning was one of the most shocking innings that I've ever witnessed in my life. And that's just because of Bartman, because of everything that happened. And, you know, again, I'd spent so much time around your team that, and I was working, look, I was working for the internet, when all the newspaper writers had to leave the clubhouse, I didn't have to go anywhere. So I just, my strategy was always after games like that, I'm going to try to outlast everybody in the media and just try to talk to people when the, when the smoke clears. And I remember being in that visiting club as a tiny little room uh, in Wrigley up the stairs. And I remember Andy Fox sitting there, Mike Lowell sitting there. You were there. It was a, it was a really small group. And I, I can still remember Andy Fox turning to you guys and saying, guys, what just happened? <laughs> and I don't know if you remember that, but I'll never forget that as long as I live. Yeah. 
And where does that rank for you, uh, Jason, in terms of uh, the games you've covered? Because I don't even I don't even want to try to do the math of how many games you have covered throughout your uh, (laughs) incredible career. Where does that one rank for you in terms of just how absurd that kind of reaction of just what just happened? Yeah, epic. You know, I, I, I just I did a book about five years ago, Wild Pitches, which was a collection of mostly a collection of uh, my favorite ESPN columns. And there were I think there are five games in there to remember. That was one of them. <laughs> OK, so <laughs> that tells you what I thought. I thought it at the time and I still think it. I uh, That's one of those games. It just can't happen. And then it happens. And that's what makes baseball great. Indeed. And dating back to 97, I know you were closer to 03, but in the 97 run, something that always stood out to me with, with what Jeff said is that was kind of the Marlins, the, one of the few times we saw them load up and, and try to win. Uh, do you remember going into that year thinking that that team had the, a shot to do what they did? I mean, again, we look at the talent and we're going to talk about some of the players on that team because one of them uh, is, is still eligible to be elected in the Hall of Fame. And if I'm not mistaken, you voted for him in the past and Gary Sheffield, correct? Uh, that's a, it was a really good team. Year. Yeah, you yeah. voted for him last year, and we're going to get to that. Uh, but did you have any idea in 97 that they were going to do that kind of thing? And, and I'm curious from an outsider's perspective, and by outsider, I just mean not playing on the literal team, uh, what the difference was for you seeing between those two teams maybe heading into the year? Uh, well, there, there are a couple of differences. That, like, that was a team that was clearly going for it, mm-hmm. and it, it, I mean, it was no secret that was the plan. Uh, it was no secret how much talent was on the roster. Um, the, the problem was the Braves were in their heyday. Yeah. <laughs> the Braves were that team that they didn't just win the division every year. They were going to the World Series every year. Um, they, they'd won in 95. They probably should have won in 96. They thought they were going to win in 97, too. And then the Marlins got in the way. Um, so... Like you wouldn't have seen it coming purely for that reason is that was as good as the Braves ever were. Um, they were trying to prove they were a team of destiny. They were trying to prove they were the team of the decade. Um, they, had a, they, they, even though they'd won once that team had it, that, that Braves team had an edge to it. And so that like, that's what I thought was the Marlins biggest obstacle. Not that they weren't good enough, but that the Braves were too good. How'd you, yeah, you feel about you talk about that uh, crowd energy, you know, and the players kind of feed off that when we went to Atlanta, the, I think it was game six. It was like, they're almost yawning I'm like, all right, here come the Marlins, you know, whatever. We're going to wipe them up and, and get onto the world series. Let's get, re- get rid of this preliminary stuff. Let's get on the main show. But it was, it was an interesting vibe for me because going in there, the, the crowd was not into it at all. Even during introductions, they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Let's the, the stands weren't filled uh, for opening pitch. You know, they filled up later on the game and it was a sell- sellout, but it was just a weird vibe. And um, you know, a lot of teams underestimated us and we played our best baseball against the best teams that year. We were eight and four against the Braves. We beat them eight, eight out of 12 times. Uh, we played the Yankees in their league. We beat them two out of three, beat the Orioles two out of three who were wire to wire leaders that season from day opening day to the end of the season. So we played our best baseball against the best teams. And, 
Um, you know, it started off in spring training. I think we were some absurd, like 26 and five in spring training or 20. Yeah. It was insane. Cause we knew we had something special really early on. The team made some really good deals at the deadline too. Uh, my, my friend, the late great Darren Dalton, I know made an impact in that team. He hit cleanup in game seven of the world series and then never played again. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, he basically took my position because I was struggling at the time Oops. and they, they felt they need to make a deal. Um, and I told Aram this, you know, we talk about list of the best teammates I've ever had. And even though he came in and, and we had to share a position, he was one of the greatest teammates I've ever had. And that was something that was really insightful to me was just, again, beyond just what you see on the field, because we, we've talked about the infamous Mets collapse, of course, what was it up seven games with 17 to go and just how much what's going on inside the clubhouse matters. And Dalton contributed on the field, but it just you talking about how much he was able to command a clubhouse when he just arrived and, and help lead that group uh, to where they needed to go, I thought was really impressive. And uh, when you talk about taking down the Braves, that was a team chock full of Hall of Famers. And that's what I was really excited to talk about with you as well, Jason, is you've got a lot of uh, research and digging to do, as you said before we started recording, on just deciding exactly how your ballot's going to shake out. And I'm really excited to see how that's all going to look. But you did just put out a really awesome piece just a few days ago on The Athletic, just kind of going over all of the big topics and all of the controversial and just – I guess just priming everybody for a little bit of an idea of what you have to go through over the next few weeks uh, in terms of making your decision. I'm really excited to talk to you about that. Also, you can go check that piece out over. I think it's still pinned at the top of your Twitter profile, but it's over at the athletic as well. What are you most, uh, I guess, Oh, stress is probably the wrong word, but what are you most just spinning a little bit in your head about as this decision comes up? Because like we said earlier, I mean, I, I would argue this is the most controversial ballot maybe you've ever had to vote on. Well, it's right up there. <laughs> the column was five things to watch on the Hall of Fame ballot. And, you know, so it's separate from all the other columns I will write about the Hall of Fame, especially this year. <laughs> we've got a lockout going on. Um and it's just trying to preview storylines. And like one of the obvious storylines is we had an election last year where nobody got elected. And now we're looking at another one where I think there's a reasonable chance that there'll be nobody elected again for a second straight year, which hasn't happened in over 60 years. Uh, the balloting was totally different. And they weren't even voting every year back then. 1958 and then 1960 was the last time the writers elected nobody in back-to-back -back elections. And I don't, I don't know whether the fact that we spend so much time talking about this ballot, debating this ballot, obsessing over this ballot because there's no other baseball to talk about is going to help or hurt some of these players, but. I mean, the whole Kurt Schilling question is, I, I, I honestly don't know where that one's leading, but I, I have a feeling that because of last year and all the stuff he said, he won't get elected. Now you've got the whole PE, the latest, greatest PED era, PED era soap opera with Bonds and Clemens last year on the ballot, Sosa's last year on the ballot, A-Rod first year on the ballot. David Ortiz is kind of a separate ring in the circus. Um, I, I figure we've got two choices 
in what we can talk about for the next two months. You can either tell our favorite baseball work stoppage stories or just dive right in on the PED era again. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? It's inevitable (laughs) with this ballot. You're going to have to bring it up. And I think a really important point of all this is that we're almost forced to create our own set of rules. Uh, And I say we, it's more so you, right? As, as writers where there's no blanket way to approach this, at least when you're voting on the hall of fame, there's a few different ways that you can, and I'm sure people prioritize different things statistically, but there's statistics and there's things that you can reference and there's things that you can look at in terms of a career on a macro scale. Now we're getting into these gray areas of with Kurt Schilling things that he said and did uh, with, with the PEDs, you know, just how you draw, where you draw the line there, because Ortiz is a different case than a Manny Ramirez, which is a different case than a Barry Bonds. And it's, where do we draw the line? Is it black and white? Is it a little bit of just case by case? I'm curious if you can clue us in a little bit to maybe your approach to that, uh, as I really was, I really enjoyed you kind of opening up and and showing you know, what your 2021 ballot was and some of your explanation behind that. And then I'm looking forward to getting some of, some of Jeff's thoughts on just the differences between a player who did use PEDs versus who didn't and what kind of advantage that really does provide to a player in his perspective. Well, Aram, I say this all the time. There's no right ballot. There's no wrong ballot. There's just your ballot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I try not to judge how other people vote. Um, I really just care about how I'm going to vote and my process, which is exhaustive. Um, you know, it's it's really easy to second guess how people vote. It's really challenging to actually hold that ballot in your hand and cast the vote. One of the reasons it's so challenging is they only let you vote for 10. Now, I know some people think that's too many anyway, but I would much prefer to do what I started out as a voter to do, which is just look at each player, judge each player, and ask myself the question, was this guy a Hall of Famer or not? And if I think the answer is yes, then just vote for him every year. The PED era has really complicated that process because you have really good players who get a bunch of votes. They don't fall off the ballot, but they never get elected. So they don't leave the ballot that way. (laughs) And uh, because of that, like, it feels like the, the debates that we have are stuck in this continuous loop year after year after year. It's exactly the same conversation. And that's one of the reasons I find this particular ballot interesting, because I wonder if A-Rod in some way could have an impact on Bonds and Clemens. I don't know how, (laughs) or even if if David Ortiz could, you know, I I, I don't know exactly how A-Rod impacts them because he's different. He came along at a time after testing uh, after stiff penalties, served the you know the one of the stiffest PED suspensions ever. Got caught two different times. Um, you know it's it's easier for me to know how to deal with players like that who got caught and got suspended than it is to try to judge all the players who have appeared on the ballot before there was testing, and where we're just trying to play this giant 
guessing game. I, I'm, I'm sure Jeff could tell you this. Are, you know, like we talk about the same 10 or 12 players all the time, when in reality, hundreds of players were doing something for all sorts of different reasons. If you read Game of Shadows, it was clear that Barry Bonds' motivation to take whatever he took was to break the home run record. But guys were taking stuff to to make that one big paycheck mm-hmm. or to, to after years of playing in the minor leagues to get to the big leagues or after playing in the big leagues to stay in the big leagues, just trying to keep up. Um, they were hurt. They were trying to heal faster. They were, they were, had something nagging. So they were trying to stay on the field. There are a million different reasons why players used some sort of PED. They weren't all trying to cheat and blow up the record book. And so when you're trying to judge that era and you look at the names on the ballot, everybody thinks they know who did what. I'm not that smart. (laughs) So to me, it's easier to just to vote for the greatest players of that era Um, and not necessarily feel good about it, but, but vote, vote for bonds vote for clemens and if they ever get elected let the hall of fame figure out how they want to deal with it if they want to put up a big placard in the gallery about the ped era go go for it if they want to put a line on everybody's plaque barry bonds hit more home runs than anybody who ever lived but let them do that but to dump it in my lap (laughs) not fun not enjoying that I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that a little bit too, Jeff, because we've talked about it in the past and, and as a player who, you know, played the game the right way and, and, and played clean and, uh, you know, dealt with a lot of nagging injuries. And I mean, I, you showed me the, all the little pieces that they took out of your elbow the other day, and I still can't get that what? out of my head. Uh, but, you know, I've dealt with so many injuries and, you know, worked hard from that. Not to say that just because you take PEDs, it just makes you Superman and you don't have to work hard. Like those guys were all incredibly talented players. And that's the most upsetting part is that a vast majority, if not all of them, would probably be Hall of Famers with or without the steroids in terms of what, what they could do on the field. Uh that aside, you know, how much of an advantage given, you know, your long career, do you really feel like that provides? Because I think that kind of helps clue in people into maybe how much they should consider it uh, when making a vote or, or at least deciding what they would vote hypothetically, because everybody likes to do their hypothetical ballot, except Jason really has to make a ballot that matters. (laughs) Well, I want to get Jason's thought on this is that, you know, in arm and I have talked about this is that, so you've got a guy on the ballot for seven, eight, nine, ten years. Why do all of a sudden does a guy's numbers improve enough in his 10th year, 11th year of eligibility and get elected to the Hall of Fame when they haven't changed in 11 years? <laughs> is that that's my point with arm is like his numbers are either good enough or they're not good enough. So is it someone just saying that, oh, there's better guys in that class, so we're not going to elect him this year? And then when there's nobody else in the class, that guy all of a sudden stands out and says, yeah, now's now's his time. I don't get the thought process between a guy that has to wait so long to get inducted um, first or 14th year. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Uh, Jeff, I'll be honest. I hate that. You know, I'm I'm not a guy who believes in that. Um, There are there are voters who vote in all kinds of different ways, but they're definitely voters who think, I want Derek Jeter to go in alone. So even though I voted for this guy last year and that guy last year, I'm not voting for him this year. 
because I want Derek Jeter to go in alone. No, we should not be voting that way. Uh, Some of the reason for these fluctuations that you've seen is um, we had a period there for seven years where we, we had more Hall of Famers on the ballot than at any time since the beginning of Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, And so the ballot was just clogged up. It was really hard to vote because, you know, four first ballot Hall of Famers coming on the ballot that you knew you had to vote for. But then what about those seven, eight players that you voted for last year who were still there, but you can only vote for 10? And what about the two other guys that you'd like to vote for, but you're not allowed? Um, like that that has been an issue. Um, the baseball writers actually petitioned the Hall of Fame at one point to say, can you just let us vote for as many as we want? And the Hall said, no, thank you. <laughs> so it's that in itself has caused a lot of this. But the other part of it is just different voters who have different agendas when they vote. And I guess it's kind of the American way, just like people step into the ballot box to vote for mayor and have all kinds of different stuff in their head. It's really the same thing with Hall of Fame voters. It's just, you know, a lot of us now believe in transparency and hundreds of us are making our ballots public. And it it opens us up to people saying, you guys are knuckleheads. And You're probably right in a lot of cases, but I I try really hard not to vote that way. I commend you for that. That's for me. I just I've never understood how a guy's numbers all of a sudden change in the eyes of some voters. And then now you're eligible for the Hall of Fame when eight years ago you weren't. I mean, um, and you were so close for so long, but then now all of a sudden you get kicked over that 75% threshold and and you get to enshrine, be enshrined in the Hall of Fame. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if I was naive in that era or not, but I, I never thought that the steroid problem was as rampant as a lot were claiming it, would, it, it was at the time. And maybe it's because the teams that I played on during that eras, those eras, maybe they didn't, I didn't see guys use it. I never was approached to use it, um, things like that, you know. So, but, you know, guys knew they knew the players on the other side that, you know, you don't go from hitting eight home runs one year to 45 the next year without a little help. That's just, just doesn't happen. Cause when you're a baseball player and you work out as hard as you can in the off season to improve your body and to put on weight, to put on muscle mass. And, you know, I don't care what regimen you put on or you try out, you're not putting on 30 pounds of muscle in one off season. It's impossible. And then all of a sudden you're hitting balls, you know, 500 feet when last year you hit eight balls out that barely got over. It just doesn't work out that way. So, you know, we knew in that circle pretty much whose performance accelerated what a normal curve would have been. I'm sure. Um, you know, you mentioned chef a couple of times, Aram, and last year was the first year that I voted for Gary Sheffield. And, uh, you know, part of the reason for that is, when you've got more players that you'd like to vote for than you have spots on your ballot, you got to play this ballot management game, <laughs> you know, where, all right, I, like, I, I, I'm definitely voting for Jeter. I'm definitely voting for Mariano. I'm definitely voting for Jim Tomey. Like, okay, you're ticking off the guys you, you know you're going to vote for. But then you have three, four spots left. And I, I've gone through all sorts of 
uh, mental gyrations trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. I don't want to vote this way, but you know, I've cast votes for guys who I thought were going to be right on the line of 5% and I didn't want them to drop off the ballot. Um, so I've done that. I've had players where I thought there's, n- there's zero chance he's getting elected. So a vote for him is a waste of a vote. I had to leave Mike Messina off one year. That was terrible. I hated doing that. Um, but he was just too far away. Um, and so you're just you're just doing that, hoping that you get another chance to vote on him next year. So Chef got caught in in that for me, and he was the. Uh, he, he, so last year I had room in the ballot. I did vote for him. This year I could be in that same situation. Is he is he close enough that he's going to be that he's going to make it, or do I wind up having to vote for other guys for other reasons? I don't want to vote this way. <laughs> but I'm forced to. There's there's just no other way to go about it. If you if you go about your ballot the way I do, by devoting time to every single name, because if you get on the Hall of Fame ballot, you had a hell of a career, and I, you know everybody deserves to have me as a voter spend time looking at their career talking to people about their career and really trying to come to a serious decision about whether I, I can check that box. It's a really serious process for me that I spend weeks with. Um, I don't know that everybody does that, but it's how I do it. I really respect how much pride you take in that because I know that means a lot to the players as well. And, and the last thing I want to ask on the hall of fame front, uh, for both of you, I have a question for each of you that's kind of similar. And then I really want to get to your article about just the things that we learned in 2021, because I really, really enjoyed that. It's literally titled on The Athletic, what we learned from the 2021 season. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. I sent that one over to Jeff and uh, we had a good time reading that one. Uh, but before we get there, I have just the question on Andrew Jones, because that's somebody we've talked about. You know, Jeff overlapped with him at the very end, I believe so. Right, Jeff? Yep. And, and, you know, you got to see him at his peak as a teenager, just turning 20 years old, just balling out for the Braves, just, just fitting right into a team that was already a, a machine. And of course he tailed off really heavily after the age of 30. And you brought up a really good point, Jason, and in your piece, I believe it was, it was the 2021 piece where you were writing about your ballot. And uh, you, you said that Andrew Jones was one of the biggest, uh, I guess, decisions that kept you up at night and, and held your ballot up from being done because he was more, he was a walk into the hall of fame uh, through his 20 to age 30 season, roughly maybe a little bit before that. Uh, And then he fell off the face of the earth between age 30 and 35, as you pointed out in that article only produced 4.7 wins above replacement, which nobody in the hall of fame did during that span of their career. Does a situation like this, where you have PED users that make it even more uh, just difficult to decide versus a guy that is a unique case in terms of just his production and a tail off. Uh, Does that make you maybe lean a little bit more towards revisiting somebody like Andrew Jones? Uh, I revisit Andrew every year. (laughs) He doesn't know this. I, I, I do because this is, you know, this happens every year. There's always that, guy who is right on the line for you and it's it's just hard this is what's so hard about being a hall of fame voter if you take it seriously you know we're 
we're leaving a mark on a guy's life and times and legacy. And I don't take that lightly. Um, If I remember right, um, in that ballot column last year, I told a story that, uh, one, you know, a few years back, I got to serve on one of these veterans committees. Um, we, it was the committee that elected um, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell, as a matter of fact. And I, I spent two days with, in a room with a, a bunch of really, really thoughtful Hall of Fame players. Um, and we would kick around all these candidates on our list. And they kept asking me the same question over and over again, because one of the reasons I was there was to try to provide some historical perspective on the players on that ballot. And they, the question that they would ask is how long was this guy a great player? How deep into his thirties would you say he was still great? What was his period of greatness? It was some variation of that over and over and over again. And I learned something that day, that to Hall of Fame players, you're not a true Hall of Famer unless you did what they did, unless you sustained your period of greatness into your 30s. And that's what stops me from voting for Andrew Jones is like, I agree with everybody who says, the young Andrew Jones was the greatest defensive center fielder they ever saw. They, he was for me too. You know, like the, I think the, uh, the, the test is ball leaves the bat. Your brain says double. And then your eyes say, wait, he's going to catch that. <laughs> you know, how many and, times uh, did that happen to you, Jeff? Too many. Too many. <laughs> too many. No, exactly. I, I had that exact thought running to first base many, many times. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I, I give Andrew credit for, all of that. I don't take it lightly. And he did started his career as 19 years old. So I recognize that he was able to put up a bunch of great seasons in his twenties. But then the question is what happened to him in his thirties? Now I was on MLB network last week talking about this. Uh, Dave O'Brien who covers the Braves for the athletic was on with us. And his feeling was Andrew Jones beat himself up with all the diving catches he made in his twenties. So that by the time he reached his thirties, he was, he was, he wasn't capable of being that guy anymore. I don't know that the teams he played for in his thirties thought that was the case. You know, he was, he, he wasn't in shape um, to play. He, uh, he, he didn't, he never played a full season any year in his thirties. And, you know, I think there are a lot of questions questions in the mind of his teams about whether he was still motivated to be great in his 30s and not his not his late 30s we're talking about his early 30s um take a look at it sometime and it's it you look at that period of time and it's it's just hard to know how to evaluate it so right now since he's been like kind of hovering on that line and I've got him on the no side. Um, Jeffy asked me like, why do, why do you vote for a guy that you hadn't voted for before? Because I take a fresh look every year and I I'll admit there've been some times that my perspective on the player changed. Maybe that happens with Andrew Jones so far. It hasn't. 
So last question on the Hall of Fame front, and I thought you, you put that incredibly, Jason, because I've been always teetering on that line, and and I think you really describe both sides of it really well. Jeff, we've talked about this a little bit, and I'm curious if you're going to give the name I think you're going to give, but one player that you think, you know, if you were on the uh, Veterans Committee, one player you think should be in the Hall of Fame before we move on to the things we learned in 2021. Wee, <clears throat> that's putting me on the spot. Um... Uh, that's what I do here. <laughs> That's what you do here. Uh, one player, if I had, and you think uh, you've got one in your mind that I would say? I think so. Why don't you uh, give my hint then, Aaron? <laughs> uh, same team as Andrew Jones for, for quite some time. Oh, interesting. Or not quite uh, some time, but at, at some points. He was a brave. A brave, like a Oh, yeah, we, we've talked about this. Fred McGriff for me Correct. is a Hall of Famer. Oh, I'm, I'm with you, man. Fred McGriff I, is a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Famer, right? In my books. I, I'm with you. I, like, we've, had some, we've had some really bad oversights. <laughs> and uh, Fred McGriff is one of the biggest mistakes that the baseball writers have made in our balloting. I mean, he hit seven more, right? And, and, and it's seven, right? That puts him at 500. Now where yeah. he's at that magic number and, and it's, it's different, you know, that that's where it's really interesting to me, but, and, and Jeff has talked interesting. about it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's that you said it. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was <laughs> carefully choosing the words there, but yeah, that's, that's, what's crazy to me. I was just at Jeff's house the other day and he has an incredible uh, just uh, showcase, I guess, of all the jerseys, which we're going to get to also, he wears a Jersey every episode, by the way, and I have to guess who it is. And then he tells a little bit of a story of, uh, you know, getting it signed and who that player was behind him. And you know, I'm looking at McGriff and every time I look at it, I'm like, damn, why is that guy not in the Hall of Fame? And, and I'm hoping that's something that, you know, maybe the Veterans Committee can can take care of down the line. But I, I thought that was going to be your answer, Jeff, because you talked about the way he hits. He was one of those power hitters, though, like not like you see today. Right. Like there wasn't that much swing and miss for the power that he was able to produce. Right. No, not at all. It was a very low strikeout rate. And, you know, you talk about Gary Sheffield, too. I hit behind Gary Sheffield in 1994 and I mean, 1996. And it's one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen by a right-handed hitter. I mean, I saw this guy, he hit uh, 41 or 40 home runs, 121 RBIs, hit 314, walked 160 times and struck out 65 times. I mean, it was an insane season, you know, so I got to see it firsthand from 18 feet or whatever, how long the on deck circle is to the the plate. And I I was still mesmerized by the swing, the violence of the swing and what he was able to do to put the ball in play. Um, And Fred McGriff for me was just one of those guys that was so ridiculously consistent at a high level that, um, you know, every year he got passed over. I was just, uh, why, why is this guy not in the hall of fame? With you a hundred percent. And now I want to wrap up too, with just, uh, this article of what we learned in 2021. And, you know, I think we learned a lot of things, especially in, in a game that was very experimental in 2020 with the shortened season. And, and I love the point that you brought up because that's something that, that Jeff has said time and time again, you know, not to validate the 2020 season, but there's a lot of aspects to it that, you know, make it just not the same. And, and I think you, you highlight a lot of really important points there, especially as to who would have made the playoffs if we stopped the season 60 games in uh, this year versus what ended up happening. But a lot of the rule changes, I thought, and, and just rules in general uh, are really intriguing. I thought the one thing that was really good was that the three true outcomes was down a little bit. I think, as you point out in the article, that's part of the, the sticky substance crackdown, probably as K rates dropped a little bit as well. But things like the shift and batting average on balls in play being a 
at an all-time low consistently. And uh, the, the three batter rule, which I thought was a fantastic point about how that really didn't help anything at all and, and did not really expedite the game. And we still saw just as many pitchers. But what stood out to you the most out of all of those things that you laid out uh, that, and then I'm excited to see what Jeff thinks of what stood out the most to him. Um, Cause there's some certain rules that we, we go at it about sometimes it's really fun, but what stood out to you the most out of all those things you laid out that was uh, you think really needs to be kind of tweaked. Well, um, if you're talking about, like all those statistical trends that that we saw, like the the one that jumps out at me is the average team now only hits five singles a game. Five, <laughs> right? That, that was a day in the life of Juan Pierre, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that was that, just a like, Tuesday for him. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's it's such a reflection of how the game is played, how the game is taught. Uh, how hitters approach swing playing and at bats now, um, how the game is strategized. It, it's a reflection of all of that. You know, if you, Max Scherzer has been in the news. Imagine going into an inning thinking you're going to get three or four singles against Max Scherzer. <laughs> you're not going to get that many a game. <laughs> okay. <Right>. So <laughs> you, you got to score some other way. And the way is to try to hit a home run. Uh, so the, the more guys, look at that and think we've got to hit the ball in the air, then the less chance there is that there will be a single. And it's fine. I, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, of creative thinking and there's a ton of creative thinking in the game right now. But if the creative thinking is going to leave action and entertainment in the dust, then we need some new thinking. <laughs> and I, th I think that's why you've, you're seeing all these rule change experiments now in the minor leagues and independent leagues is a lot of people within the sport are resigned to the fact that you can't just sit back and hope that hitters are going to adjust or front offices are going to adjust and the game is going to go back to being that to having more action and better rhythm. You're going to have to force that to happen. And I don't know where we're going to where we're going to be when we come out of these labor talks, but you've got to come out of it with some of these rule change experiments in place. And I think I would personally start with the pitch clock. Jeff, well, what about you? What what rule really stood out to you? Um, and, you know, I know you're a big proponent of not adjusting the game too much. Yeah, all of them. They all stink. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't change um, anything. You know, for me, I'm a, you know, the baseball purist. I, I love, I played the game a certain way for so long my entire life. And, you know, if you're going to change a rule, change it for entertainment's sake. It's not to say you're going to change it for time's sake because the length of baseball games are as long now as they've ever been. All these changes they keep on implementing to speed up the game, which what is it going to speed up by eight, 10 minutes? What good is that going to do anybody? You know, if we're talking about half an hour, okay, maybe that's a significant change, but who gives a crap if a, if a game is three hours or two hours and 50 minutes? I mean, it's, that doesn't, so you're, you're, you're changing all these rules to speed up the game and none of it's sped up. If you want to change it, hey, we're trying to get this more entertaining for the fans, blah, blah, blah. All right, then just say that. Um, because I think a lot of this has been made um, for speed purposes and it doesn't gel right with me. 
And, you know, you've taken, you know, a lot of the aggressiveness out of the game too, with some of the new rules on the base paths and uh, with the catchers and all that stuff, which was an element that in our day was something that provided competition. And um, I liked it. You know, Jeff, I mentioned pitch clock. Um, I wrote a piece toward the end of the season about the 15 second pitch clock in what used to be called the California league. Now is the, Low A West League or something. <laughs> um, I can't keep up with that but, either. And the Cal League doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, it doesn't have that name. Wow. It, it exists otherwise. And we, we don't. We don't need to spend time on that. But it, I didn't actually fly to California to watch a game. But I'll tell you what I did do. I I watched a game on milb.com, and it was incredible the rhythm that that game had. And so when they, after they went to the, the 15 second pitch clock, a bunch of incredible things happened. Uh, game time went down by, I think it was 21 minutes a game on the average game. And if it was just about time, you're exactly right. Who cares? But there was a lot of things happened. There was more offense. There were, there were more, fewer walks, Fewer strikeouts, more balls in play, less swinging and missing, more action in less time. And like if you're talking about baseball as an entertainment product, (laughs) isn't that what we want? Less dead time, more action. I'm off for both of those. I'm 100% on board with you there because as a defender, you want your pitcher to get on the mound and throw the ball. Cause I don't want to stand around out there waiting for you to do whatever your routine is. It takes half a minute. We're getting bored out there. We want you to get, get, get the ball and, and get on the mound and pitch. And, you know, you look at, you know, we talked about the Atlanta Braves and, and that staff. I mean, they were masters at getting on the mound, knowing what they wanted to do and executing it right away. I mean, Greg Maddox, how many under 100 pitch two hour games did you see him pitch? <laughs> Tons of them. That's what his specialty was. And, we knew we were facing Greg Maddox is going to be a quick game. And we were hoping it was a getaway day. <laughs> yeah. You know, Raul Abanez was, uh, he's heavily involved in a lot of these experiments and especially that pitch clock. He told me, reminded him of playing in, in Atlanta against Greg Maddox. And there was a night game that, that was over before it was even dark out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it started at seven, was over at eight forty-five. Wasn't dark kid in Atlanta. Well, Eighty-two pitches later, you're you're packing your stuff up. Well, right. and I think that's the best approach, right? Because you're you're not changing any rules that actually impact the the way the game is played. It's just the flow of it. And and I think you you look at it from a player perspective. For Jeff, I mean, aside from the fact that you can't step out of the box quite as long and, and you know, not something that anyone really cares about that much on the defensive side, you don't have to worry about the pitchers that, you know, your son introduced me to this term, but like human rain delay as like the pitchers that just take forever and, and you know, walk guys and and it just it takes the players out of the game. Imagine if you're a fan sitting in a chair, it's going to take you out of the game even more because you're not getting paid. You're not on the field. Uh, so I, I think that's one that I'm really excited to see how that might progress. Uh, but I, I wanted to wrap up with the, the one other thing that I thought really stood out to me that I think uh, is one of the more intriguing things that may not have been brought up if it weren't for such a ridiculous NL West this year. And it's the postseason format. Uh, and you said, Jason, that the postseason format needs to change. And I think because of the way that we saw things unfold with you know, the Dodgers having to play in a wild card game uh, where they could have easily lost. And that's it. You win 106 games and 
you're out in one afternoon game in the middle of a week, like you said. Uh, what are your thoughts on that a little bit? Uh, and of course, they, they can read more about that. And we're going to link all of these articles in the description of the podcast so you could check out. But what are your thoughts expanding on that a little bit uh, based on, on what you wrote? Um, you know, I have to admit that I, like, I, I'm a little conflicted on this in retrospect because, you know, we've had some great wildcard games. And they're tremendous theater. Um, I, I felt sorry for the Dodgers to win 106 games and then get stuck in that wild card game. But it was incredible drama to have a 106 win team have its entire season on the line over those three, three and a half hours against a really good team that had just won 17 in a row in the Cardinals. And, you know, if you're looking from, an entertainment perspective, you understand the beauty of the wildcard game. But the problem is I've been in so many of these games and there's only one bad thing about that game. You know what it is? If you lose, <laughs> you know, and your whole beautiful season goes down the drain in a few hours, there's no pain like that pain. Um, I was at the very first NL wildcard game. This was Braves Cardinals in Atlanta. The Braves had won. I forget how many more games in the Cardinals. This was the infield fly rule game. Oh, I remember that. And it, I was in their clubhouse after that game. And that was the angriest group of people after a loss that I had ever been around. You know, baseball players learn how to accept defeat, but not that, not that kind of defeat. Um, and so you know, I think we're going to see something different next year. I do think the first round is going to go to best of three, all in one site, um, determined by who had the better record during the season. So, you know, you won't have that again, but I will miss it just from the drama of the postseason starting with a game seven and it's yeah. October madness. Jeff, from a player's side, though. You know, I, I, I'm with Jason 100%. It, it is really cool to hang on every pitch. It is a game seven to start the postseason. But you put in a full 162, dominate that 162, and it all could be taken away from you from an outfield fly rule, basically, uh, which is I remember them calling it that in Atlanta. Yeah, that's crazy. <clears throat> um I mean, I like the drama as well. And when you think about the extra team that gets to make it in the playoffs in the old format, they don't even get to make it the playoffs. So that's the whole premise behind the whole thing is you get an extra team in there. So they're going to be playing hard at the very end uh, to, to make the competition a little better. Um, and I agree. It would have been a great TV if the Dodgers lose that after a 106 win season um, <laughs> in that, that one shot playoff game. Um I don't know. You know, they're always talking about trying not to extend it in November. And, and when do you stop extending these series out? You got the first round, not going to be three games and you got to take days off to get into the next series. And now the playoffs become a month and a half long. I mean, that's like hockey, man. Those guys play playoffs for like two months. Um, so I don't know what format is going to be the most agreeable. Do you, do you expand it a little bit more, have another team come in? So those two teams have to play off to get into a, a series with the wild card winner. I don't know what it's going to be, but, um, 
Uh, it's been exciting baseball, as Jason said. It's been very exciting with this one game and done mentality we've had over the last few. So now we got to put Jason on the spot here and we look at what jersey you might be wearing. And we're going to play a guessing game real quick as we ended up right here. Uh, give us a little hint, at least, of what jersey you're wearing right now. I can only see the piping. I can guess San Francisco Giants, uh, but I can't tell. Is that, is that the guess. team? Wow. Good San guess. Francisco Giants. All right, Jason, any clue? You want to give him a decade or something like that? Okay, a span so th- this is all right. So just so I know what this is, uh, this is not a team you played for. It's not a jersey, not your jersey. It's some rival player's jersey. And um, I will say it usually ties into the theme of what we, we talk about on the podcasts. So obviously what has been this theme? It's been the Hall of Fame. So I'm wearing a, a Hall of Famer's jersey. A Giants Hall of Famers jersey. All right, let me take a look at this. We can only see the V-neck. Uh, this is an older. This is an older uniform. It's an older design. Giants Hall of Famer. Well, might as well guess Willie Mays. Can't go wrong with that guess. Yeah, I guess I, I probably could have made it a little more difficult. But... <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wow. Oh God. How cool is that? That's yeah, I, 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 you know, I told Aram and, you know, as you can see, I, I've got a few things that I collected over my career, but. Um, wow. At one point I started going for jerseys um, because the, the people we bought this house from had this upstairs loft area designed um, to house jerseys. So. I get That's to, amazing. I get wow. to hang them up rather than frame them because framing takes so much spot on a wall it takes a lot of space on a wall so i get to hang mine up um so i went after jerseys and uh went over basically every roster with our equipment guy with the marlins at the time and and found out which hall of famers were working for organizations and uh, we knew that both willie mccovey and and willie mays were uh, involved with the giants at the time and so i ordered these jerseys old mitchell and ness you know yeah jerseys back in the day and, uh, yeah, I got to meet him and I asked him, you know, to personalize it for me. And he, he signed this jersey for me. Oh, my God, that's incredible. And did you ever have any any uh, crossing of paths, Jason, with with Willie Mays? Or was there one player that really just struck you? Uh, I I've met like I've I've been in the same stadium as Willie Mays, but I never <laughs> met Willie Mays. I would love to do that someday. Yep, ninety years old and and still right. still rocking it. And one of the best. And times. arguably, well, you know, when you talk about Hall of Fame and and greatest players of all time, he's arguably arguably the greatest player that's ever played this game. Hey, he's on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, for <laughs> I think definitely. that's that's safe. And uh, John Shea's book Twenty Four uh, came out last year. It's spectacular. A lot of tremendous Willie Mays stories in that book, and with Willie weighing in on all of them. It's great. Well, I got to pick that up. That'd be nice. I got to see yeah. that. Yeah. Adding that to the reading list as well. And uh, I've got my personal, a little bit more modern, but t- t- over my right shoulder, my personal favorite player of all time and Ken Griffey Jr. hanging up uh, behind me in the 500 club over here as well. So not quite uh, what Jeff's got going on, but I, I do want to start to build up a Jersey collection as well. But Jason, Thank you so much for taking the time. I know we've, we've already taken so much of your time. I'd keep you all night if I could. Uh, 
anything to look out for? I know there is a lot to look out for, but what should uh, listeners look out for that you'll be having uh, coming up in the athletic? Of course, like I said, we have the the previous articles we referenced to LinkedIn so people can follow along as they listen to the episode. But what's coming up for you is I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah, well, I, I can't give you too many details here, but, um, I, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try not to tell labor stories over the next two months when we're stuck in the middle of this lockout. But one of the things that we are interested in is ideas, um, not necessarily ideas to solve the lockout, but ideas to make the game better that maybe you can come out the other side of the labor deal with. Um, I've got one of those ideas that I'm working on. And if all goes well, you'll see that in the athletic next week, guys. Ooh, look forward to it. All right. I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, we'll be sure to talk about it on the next episode. And we'll get Jeff's thoughts as he does. He'll probably want to say, nope, we're, we're keeping the game the same way, but I'm sure it'll be a really interesting uh, idea and a well-laid out. 15 second clock. I'll, I'll be, I'm on board for that one. There we go. There we go. Yeah, That's big. Yeah. Read that story, Jeff. It's really, it was really fun to do really. Fun. I will. I will. Looking forward to checking that out as well. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time uh, and, and spending the busy, busy day uh, with us this evening and uh, best of luck the rest of the off season. And I'm looking forward to reading that piece you just teased and I look forward to hopefully connecting again soon. I'm appreciated, man. Always happy to do some podcasting with a fellow orange person. <laughs> yes. Rough <laughs> times Jeff, for our teams, but yeah, well, we can get into that. Some other podcast. But. Absolutely. Yeah. Je- Jason, let me just say Je- Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Oh, you're always one of my very, very, very favorite players to cover and talk to. So thank I you very much it. for inviting one of my favorites me. as well. Appreciate it, my friend. All right. Happy holidays guys. 